You are listening to a sermon from Emmaus Church LCMS. For more information, please go to www.emmauspasco.org. Behold, O Lord, a lamb of your own flock, a sheep of your own fold, and a sinner of your own redeeming. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Uh, last week, I was listening on YouTube to a Lutheran pastor who does a lot of stuff on YouTube, and, and he said something that, sh- that I've, been, I've thought about for a long time, and he put it in, in a very incisive way. He said, there are so many things the Bible says that we don't believe because someone else says it wrongly. There are so many things the Bible says, but we don't believe them, or at least we don't act like we believe them, because someone else says it wrongly. For example, the idea of being born again. This is a very popular concept in some parts of Christianity, and it's a very biblical concept. Jesus talks about being born again, and yet Lutherans almost never talk about being born again. And as I was thinking about this, I was compiling a list of things that we as Lutherans don't often talk about. We act like we don't believe, even though they're right there in the Bible, and we do believe them. We act like we don't. They don't have any impact on the way we live our lives of faith. And I was kind of compiling a list, and as I was reading this week's lesson from Ephesians, one of them jumped right out at me, predestination. As Lutherans, we simply don't talk about predestination. And the reason for this is because the Reformed get it really wrong. They have this whole thing called double predestination, and we get squeamish about even about talking about it. And so before I became a Lutheran, I was a Reformed Baptist, and, and, and predestination was a big deal to me. It was a super big deal. I talked about it all the time. I'd be happy to argue with anyone who wanted to go to, go to bat with me. It was fun. It was the cent, one of the centerpieces of my theology. And in the course of going to Lutheran seminary and becoming a Lutheran, it just dropped out of my grammar. Since I'm, and I'm gonna, willing to bet that none of you can remember a time when I talked to you about predestination. And actually, another example, another Lutheran pastor, he criticized our hymn of the day in Christ alone for this line. He said, the line that says, Jesus commands my destiny, as if that might teach double predestination. Now, hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll see why that's ridiculous. And you'll see why that reflects an allergy to what the Bible says about predestination. Because the scripture is really clear, predestination is a thing. It's a good thing. It's actually part of the gospel. Ephesians 1.3, God chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And he says it again in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So how exactly did we get to a place where something as baldly obvious right there in the text is something we never talk about. Where even the slightest hint of Jesus having something to do with my destiny might sound suspicious to us. So let's start with defining what predestination is. It is God's act of choosing from eternity those whom he would make his own children in time through faith in Jesus Christ. God's act of choosing from eternity those whom he would make his own children in time through faith in Jesus Christ. He right, comes right out of Ephesians. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So what's the big deal with this? Well, the first thing we have to recognize is that predestination is a mystery. It is a mystery. And this is one of your blanks. It is a divine secret that God chooses to reveal. Because anytime we start talking about an eternal anything, we're dealing with mystery. 
because we are creatures of time. Time is part of creation. Understanding things in time is part of how we are built to live in the world. And so as soon as we start talking about eternity, that is something outside time, our language is going to start falling apart. But with these words, God is inviting us to do that very thing, to talk about this eternal mystery. We're invited to contemplate it. We don't deserve to know anything about this, but God wants us to. All right? So here's what, how I want you to think about this. Suppose, for instance, that you're a peasant in, say, the Middle Ages in, in Persia. And you get invited into the palace of the Arabian Shah. Well, Arabian, I ran. Anyways, a really wealthy Shah. And you are touring his palace, and you see all sorts of strange things, interesting people, statues, objects, treasures. Some of these things you have words to describe, kind of. Some of these things you don't even know what they're for. You don't know how to use them. But you remember your manners as a guest, which means you let the host show you what he wants to show you. And you don't go snooping around his closets. You don't go poking around where he hasn't invited you. When you enjoy the fact that he has indeed invited you into his palace and shown you some of the beautiful things there. So when God invites us into the mystery of eternity and talking about his eternal actions, his plans, we see many mysteries. We see many marvels, things we don't understand. All these questions jump out. If God eternally, like, like this, if God eternally knows the future, why did he allow evil in the first place? If God... How does an eternal God act, interact with time? Doesn't time kind of infect him and get him all mixed up? If God eternally knows the future, including our choices, do we have any freedom to choose otherwise? If God eternally willed to unite everything in Jesus, how could it be that some are not saved? If God eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then is Jesus of Nazareth also eternal? And can he pop into the story ahead of time as Jesus? All sorts of mysteries, all sorts of interesting things that, we, that, are, that are interesting to contemplate. But we, as guests in God's eternity, we humbly accept what we are given, we demand no more, but we say no less than what God in his wisdom has chosen to show us. So we limit ourselves to what he's given us in his word. We don't go beyond what his word might say and snoop about in the closets of eternity. So. As we do this, the first thing I want you to start with, and I'm starting with this so that if you want to turn your brain off afterwards, you can go to sleep, because this is really the payoff. This is the payoff. Predestination includes the entire journey of salvation. Justification and sanctification. Faith and works. All of it is the product of a process that began when God chose you before time. Everything. Now, I used to actually think about this as just like, as just thinking about faith. I either have faith or I don't, or I'm justified or I'm not because God chose me. But Ephesians 1 is broader than this. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not simply that we should be reckoned holy and blameless, that's true, but also that we should be and become and actually truly stay holy and blameless. And he says this again in chapter 2 in the famous by grace you've been saved through faith is not of your works as a gift of God. He then goes on to say, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So in other words, what predestination means is that everything good about you is God's fault. Everything good about you, gets, God gets the credit for it. God gets the glory for it. Your faith your good works, your kindness, your obedience, everything began and came from, began with and came from God. Nothing good originates from you. 
It all originates from God's choice before all worlds without any merit or worthiness in you. He chose to adopt you as his child, to make you look like his child, and to conform you to the image of his son. So what, this is actually kind of helpful because sometimes, sometimes sanctification, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ, involves suffering. It involves loss. It involves maybe, say, someone attacks you and harms you and hurts you. And God teaches you through that hurt and harm to love your enemy and pray for those who hate you. Maybe you, you lose money and you're financially unstable and God teaches you through that suffering to trust him rather than mammon. All sorts of experiences. Maybe you lose your health. Go into this process of being conformed to the image of Jesus and knowing even from before all worlds, God chose to use this to make me look like Jesus. So you never have to wonder, has God lost control here? Does God have any idea what he's doing? Is this plan B? Am I, am I plan B? Because this doesn't seem to be working out the way I think it should. No. No, no, no. God holds the beginning, and he holds the end. And he's known it all, and he chose it all. He chose to adopt you as his child and to make you look like his child and be like his child. And this choosing actually makes a difference because it's an action of God. Here's where we have to parse out some terms that are related. Predestination is not the same thing as foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is a word we use to talk about God's eternal omniscience, that he knows all things outside time, which means he knows the past, he knows the future. It's all present to him. But foreknowledge, simply knowing these things, isn't causative. As in, it's not God doing these things, because God foreknows good and he foreknows evil. But that doesn't mean he's the cause of evil. God foreknows rape and murder and genocide. That doesn't mean he causes them. He does not will them simply because he foreknows them. God knew Adam and Eve would rebel, but he does not cause them to rebel. Scripture never says that God is the cause of sin and rebellion. But predestination is different. Predestination is God's active act of choosing to do something. It's him beginning a causal chain of events, hitting a domino that eventually leads to something. It is a causative act that causes the salvation of sinners. He chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption that we might be holy and blameless. So predestination is a cause of salvation. Cause of salvation. But it is not a cause of damnation. Here's where the Reformed go wrong. They say, okay, because God causes the salvation of some through his choice, that means he also causes the damnation of others. It's a double predestination. He chose some to save and some to damn. It doesn't, but the problem is, is that that goes beyond what the text actually says. It might be a rational conclusion or deduction, but it actually goes beyond what the text says and says something about an eternal mystery that God did not say. Because the Bible actually says that God desires all to be saved. God actually wants all to be saved. That's his will. That's what he wants even though he foreknows that some will be lost and, he, and some will reject him. That's not what he planned for. We can see this in another way in Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. In Matthew 25, well, this is what you see. Hell was not a place prepared for unbelievers. Hell was not ever designed with humans in mind. In the sheep and the goats, it says, when he's talking to the sheep, become you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. The sheep go to a place that's been prepared for them from eternity. But the goats, the goats are, depart 
to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who are lost go to a place they were, God never intended them to be. So the cause of damnation, the cause of being lost, is always the desire of those who rebel. Those who are enslaved to the devil, who want to actually be somewhere other than what God wants, other than where God is. Who want anything, actually, rather than to be in God's presence. As we've talked about before, there's no one in hell who does not want to be. Because they'd rather be somewhere other than God. So while God does indeed foreknow that some will be lost, he, and he allows it, he, is never the, he never predestines it. He never causes it to happen. Now, I can hear someone say, hold on a second, that's not fair. That is not fair for God to, of his own will, choose some and not others. How could a good and just God choose some and not others? So let me, let me ask, what is fair here? Hey, Levi's not here, so I'm going to pick on him. Let's suppose Levi and a couple of his friends get really worked up, and they are mad at Jim. They are really mad at Jim. And so they decide, you know what, we're going to burn some stuff down. And they burn down a couple fields of his, a couple fields of hay. And I asked Jim this week how much that would cost. And a couple fields is going to run up in around $300,000. And they get caught, they get, what do they deserve? They deserve to repay the debt. That's the just and right thing. That's what they are due, to repay all the debt they're owed. Now, what if Jim decides that because he likes Levi's hair, he's going to pay the debt for Levi? Is that unfair to the others? Does he owe the other kids anything? No. No, what they are owed is a payback of debt. And Jesus actually said this in a different way in the parable of the landowner, who, who pays the same rate to people who work all day and people who work only for one hour. And when they object, he says, isn't what is mine, mine to give to whom I will? If I choose to pay the debt of some, is that unjust? Do I somehow owe the debts to others? No, Jim doesn't owe those kids anything. So the unfairness of predestination is not about those who are lost. It's about the fact that God chose to save anyone in the first place. That's not fair. How can people who dedicated their lives to hurting other people be redeemed? That's not fair. How can sinners like you be redeemed? That's not fair. How can people who, who enslaved others, who destroyed lives and killed families, how can they be saved? They are, by faith in Jesus, and that's not fair. So if we're going to talk about what's unfair, the fact that anyone gets grace at all means they're getting something they don't deserve, that someone came in and paid a debt for them, and they're not getting what they're due, and that's not fair. And that's called the gospel of grace. Now that still leaves us with a difficult question, why some and not others? Because we all have people in our lives who have walked away from Christ. We all have people who in our lives, and it's a, so it's a painful question. If, if God has chosen me, why didn't he choose my, my uncle or my son or my daughter? And again, we have to remember, we are wandering the halls of God's mysterious eternal will. And he shows us that in mercy, he chose to save some according to the purpose of his will. We can't say more than he's given us. But some people still try, and they say, well, hold on, hold on. Maybe, maybe God, he knew some were a little more deserving than others. He, he, God has foreknowledge, right? He knows the future. So he could look ahead and see who's going to choose me, who's going to respond in faith, who's going to accept my love by their own free will, and then he chose them. Right? Now, this is the other side of the horse. This is where the, what we call free will Baptists fall off. And they say, God did predestine some, but he only predestined those who he looked ahead and saw, they will choose me. So I'll choose them. The problem is, 
is that predestination is not a response to anything that we do or contribute. It is not conditioned on us. It's not conditioned on whether God knows, whether we'll have faith, or anything else. Now, in saying this, though, it makes us feel a little bit better about this mystery, saying, well, God chose those who have faith, who he knew would have faith. It sounds a little more fair. It kind of resolves this tension a little bit. Some deserve it, some don't. But the problem is it does so again at the expense of the gospel. Because the gospel is that there was nothing in you that deserved salvation. God owed nothing to you, and yet he gave you everything. And in Romans 9, God says that God's predestination comes before you're born, before they're born, and do anything good or evil. And Paul is, is absolutely clear. No one is deserving. Not one. No one can boast and say, God saw that I would rightly repent, so he chose me. You don't get to say that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everyone is born in the same boat, hating God. Everyone is born in the same boat, incapable of doing anything else. Everyone is born in the same boat, not wanting to be around a God who is God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of us wanting to respond to him, loved us. No, 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 no. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God's predestination is a complete and total gift. It's not conditioned by anything in the sinner, but solely by this gracious, mysterious will of God revealed in Christ. So, let's be honest, that makes it kind of scary, right? If there's nothing in me that determines whether I deserve election or not, if I can't look at my works or my repentance or whatever and say, well, God chose me because he knew I'd repent, well, how do I know that I'm elect? How do I know that I'm predestined? How do I know that God chose me? And this is the deep terror that makes this doctrine kind of hard to talk about. It's an anxiety. When we, when we fall into sin and temptation, we wonder, maybe I'm not predestined. Maybe God didn't choose me. Maybe if he did choose me, I'd be doing this whole thing better. I'd be a better mother. I'd be a better uh, worker. I'd have a better job. Maybe if he chose me, I'd be more courageous. So how do we know we're predestined? Maybe we could use reason. Reason could tell us we're predestined. No, no. reason is still arguing about whether God can see the future and he's snooping about in God's closets. Maybe the law can tell you. But as long as you're not doing all of it, the law is going to tell you you're not. What if your feelings tell you you're predestined? Well, good luck with that. Maybe sometimes they will, maybe sometimes they won't. Your heart is fickle and deceitful and very easy to manipulate. So how do we know? Well, fortunately, God has actually told us how to know. Because he said that we are predestined in Christ. Predestination is in Christ. And you have to hold on to this and not let it go. And everything about predestination has to run through these words, in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So predestination is an eternal mystery. It's hard to describe. It's beyond the norms of our language. But it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay in eternity. It breaks into history, into time and space, into your day through the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He reveals and enacts God's hidden will, and he does what God intended eternally to do. 
So if you want to see God's predestination, if you want to see God's eternal will, you look at the man from Nazareth, at Jesus, the son of Mary, who, as Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. You know what God chose when you look at Jesus. Okay, so how do we look at Jesus? Well, Jesus is revealed through his gospel. Christ is revealed in his gospel. And actually, Paul says this in 113. In him you also, in him, that is, in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. So where is Jesus? He's in his gospel. Through the word of truth, he gives his spirit. He sends when he says, repent and believe the gospel. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anyone who comes to me, I will never drive away. Or by his spirit, when he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus' words, his promise, is where you look for your predestination. It's where you look for your election. But I know reason's going to jump in here and say, well, well if, if God, and, and I know this because this is what I used to do in thinking, if God predestines some and not others, maybe Jesus is only kind of pretending to talk to me. Maybe I'm not really elect. I'm, I'm one of these kind of falling away apostates who, who thinks he believes but actually will fall away someday because I'm not elect. Maybe, when, because Jesus said, many are called but few are chosen. So maybe Jesus talking to me, he isn't actually talking to me. Maybe he's just talking to the chosen instead. How do I know that Jesus is really actually talking to a sinner like me? Well, here's where we have to remember that Christ died for all. All. Not just those who are elect. Not just those who are chosen. His atonement pays for all sins. The promise of the gospel is universal and unlimited. Jesus died for all sins and atoned for the whole world. And this is important because Jesus tells his church to go out and preach to the whole world. The whole world. Luke 24. Proclaim repentance and forgiveness to all nations. Or John 3.16. God so loved the world the rebellious and sinful and nasty world, and he gave his only son for the life of that world. Or Jesus is, in John 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or just explicitly in 1 Timothy 2. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. All people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And so 1 Timothy 4, we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So let's give an example here. I'm going to take Jim and Levi again, shift, shift it around a little bit. Suppose Jim is feeling really, really gracious. So he pays the debt of all the teenagers, not just Levi. He pays all the debt. There's nothing left to be paid. But some of those teenagers hate Jim so much that they say, I don't believe you. I'm going to go keep paying. And they spend the rest of their life trying to pay a debt that has already been paid because they hate Jim. Jesus paid for all the sins, but some, the whole world, but some people are going to refuse to believe it. But because Christ died for all, that means it includes you. And you can know it includes you. He's calling you that God's predestination is for you through his gospel. And so, the last one. Predestination means that the call of the gospel in word and sacrament reveals that God's eternal will is for you, meaning Allie, Penny, 
Dennis and Melanie and Mel. Write your name there in that last one. When God says you, he means you. Because Jesus died for all. I can tell you right now that Jesus died for you. And when his word comes and says that your sins are forgiven, that this is my body and blood given for you, it means Jody and Judy. When you are baptized, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that you means Elizabeth, means Gail. Because the promise of the gospel is where God's eternal predestination breaks into time and says, I choose you. You are mine. I love you. I've paid your debts. Trust me. So the words, Jesus commands my destiny, they're a confession of faith. They're a confession of faith that the man from Nazareth, Jesus, actually is the one whose word, his command, determines your future. When he says forgiveness, that's true. When he says, I will raise you from the dead, that's true. And whatever sin may beset you, whatever evil befall you, Jesus has given you his promise. So that when you stand before the throne of God someday and wonder, here's where I get to know whether I'm elect or not, you have one word and one word, you have one thing to say, you promised. You promised. Thus says the Lord. Amen. This has been a message from Emmaus Church LCMS. We thank you for listening and invite you to find out more by visiting our website at www.emmauspasco.org. That's www.emmauspasco.org.